0: Okay. I'm gonna actually have to ask you guys to settle down, just calm down just a little bit. We're getting ready to start. Just take you know, take a good breath. There you go. Find your seats. <laughs> huh? <laughs> that actually sounds like a good plan. <clears throat> Went home, had lunch, sat on the couch, out like a light. So uh, well, uh, welcome tonight to, uh, our study in the book of 1st John. Uh, we're in chapter 2. Um, we're gonna try to get a little bit more traction than, uh, the, uh, one verse that we seem to kind of get through, um, last week, but, uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to move forward with, uh, uh, getting down there, uh, maybe to hopefully verse 4. We'll, we'll give it a whirl and see how far we can get, but, uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll uh, get started tonight and uh, get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the time and the opportunity that we have, Lord, uh, to just uh, uh, truly enjoy uh, what you've given to us uh, from your scripture, uh, the the guidance, the wisdom, the direction that we have. Um, and I just pray that tonight, Lord, as we look at uh, 1 John uh, the importance behind, uh, making sure that we examine ourselves, that we truly look at, uh, what it is that we are saying, not only verbally, but also in our heart, and what it is that we are doing, and what it is that we are thinking. Lord, I just pray that, uh, we'd be very, very, um, uh, thoughtful tonight about uh, those things, that Lord, we would take these principles that we're about to learn, and we would use them to glorify you and to give you praise. But tonight, Lord, I just pray that all of what we say and do would be honoring and pleasing to you in your sight. And these things I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are in First uh, John, in First John chapter 2. Um, we'll pick up verse 1, which we kind of got through a little bit. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we uh, got into some detail about that, uh, got into some detail about, uh, um, obviously, we know that the accusers out there and why Jesus Christ is called that advocate. Because, you know, again, we are looking at it from a legal standpoint, Um you know, when you look at who God is, God is, you know, obviously multifaceted. Uh, he's a mathematician. He's, uh, I don't want to call him a scientist because he wrote the laws of science. He's not actually searching for truth. But, uh, he, he, he's very much methodical and engineering in that way. At the same time, we find that he is uh, obviously uh, a, a, a lawyer and judge, if you will, from a legal standpoint. And this is where John is approaching it from. He approaches it from that legal point of view where he's talking about uh, some pretty big words here, where he's talking about advocacy, uh, and he's also talking about propitiation. And that is, again, another legal term that we have to look at and define. Because in verse 2, it says this, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, you know, again, John being a little bit like his brother James gets right to the point saying uh, that the person that has that uh, duplicative type mentality saying one thing and doing something totally different is basically a liar, somebody that is not telling the truth, somebody that the truth is absent in there. And that is an important thing to begin to understand when we get down there a little bit further to these passages, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of explore that a little bit more. But it's important for us to know that first and foremost, if we take a look at our lives and we take a look at the sins that we commit, we know that we need the forgiveness. We talked about that in chapter one. And that is a very important thing: is going and confessing. That is one of the key elements of the corrective process that we do. Yes, our sins are forgiven, but we still need to go to God, and we still need to say, "Hey, God, search me, try me, show me where there is any evil way or wicked way within me. Show me where what's what's guiding me and directing me." Um, we need to do all of those things, and we need to say, "Lord, you know, I, hey, I, I have I have sinned." I, I I need this taken care of. And that's a key important process uh or part of the process. If we don't do that, then we're, we're, we're missing out on some things. Where again, we're skipping steps. And God is very orderly. God has steps that he wants us to walk through and he wants us to abide by. So when we take a look at this, we begin to understand the concept of when he's saying, look, if there is a sin that is committed, we know that we have the, you know, Jesus Christ is the advocate to the Father saying, hey, look, you know, I paid for that sin. I have, uh, uh, covered that sin. That sin is taken care of regardless of what the accuser says. Those things are handled and addressed. And it gets to this point where he begins to say why he can be that advocate because of the propitiation. So let's define propitiation. It's not a word that we use normally in this day and age. We use it in the legal world, um, not t- typically the job that I do, but in the legal world, it is often used in court, specifically when we're talking about people being convicted and talking about um, uh, what happens after conviction, what, what needs to occur. Propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and conciliate, uh, conciliating the favor of an offended person. And if we take a look at what Scripture says, it says that when we have sinned, whether it's one sin that we violated, it says that we are, what, we're guilty of offending the entire law. And we need to understand that, that we have offended God. Now look, you know, sometimes people don't care if they offend other people. We really should, because that's what Scripture talks about. We should... We should not want to be offensive in that nature. Now, if somebody gets offended because we tell them the truth from the word of God, well, that's on them. But we shouldn't walk around being an offensive person that's just, you know, caustic and abrasive by nature, things of that nature. Because God talks about a a Christian is supposed to be kind and gentle and merciful and, if you will, having grace. So we know exactly how God has an expectation of us. But when we take a look at what we do, and, and again, you know, we offend, as James says, we you know we offend with our tongue. That's that's something that we do frequently. But when we offend God, meaning that we have sinned against Him, we have violated His standards, we have broken a commandment of what He has told us to do, then we, as believers, we need to begin to understand how we make that right. And that is why Jesus Christ becomes an important part of this because, again, he has paid for that. He has taken care of that offense through his shed blood and his death on the cross. That is an important element. Those are one of those things that we, you know, when you take a look at what, what what's important in Scripture— That's one of the key things that we have to begin to understand. That's why when you start looking at scripture and you start looking at the Bible, there are important phrases that are in there that are going to, if you will, guide us and direct us into the right thought process. Now, again, you know, I don't want to go conspiracy theory and things of that nature, but let's just understand the world does not want to talk about the shed blood of Jesus Christ, The world does not want to talk about the deity of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And what we have today is we have some horrible things that have been produced that call themselves Bibles. And those things are very clearly erasing what God has done. They don't talk about that that we have redemption through his blood. They'll just say that we have redemption and then end the sentence there, but we'll skip things like through his blood. We'll skip things about the deity of Jesus Christ and who he was and what he did. Those are important principles. Those are things that, that that we cannot, you know, do away with. Those are things that we need to stand firm on. Because if we don't stand firm on those things, the next thing that you know is you wind up with Bibles like the Gen Z Bible. Have you heard that one yet? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I don't even. I can't even begin to describe it. You, you, you go over to, to, to Genesis chapter three, and some w- w- this one pastor who was reading how that Genesis three reads in the Gen Z Bible, and instead of over there where where God says in Genesis chapter three, uh Adam, um, uh he says that where art thou? It, it says it, it basically said, and 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 Big G said bruh, and I'm like what? How, how no no that's that's offensive that's blasphemous so this is why it becomes important that we understand these things and understand if you will larger words like this propitiation because we have to understand that our sin is offensive to god it's offensive to god there are things that offend us there are things that offend us you're driving down the road on I-5. Somebody cuts you off and tells you you're number one. That's offensive. That's just offensive. You're in the line at a grocery store. and You're standing there. Somebody comes in, cuts in, puts their things down in front uh, of yours, pushes yours to the side, and, and uh, doesn't even acknowledge you other than look at you and glares at you like, why are you existing in my space? And then she begins to check out or begins to go through that process, you would be offended. But we need to understand that the offense that our sin has done in the eyes of God. He has set a standard. He has set what he he expected of us from the garden. All of these things and that sin has become an offensive thing to him. Because it is contrary to who he is. What he's about. Contrary to his love, contrary to, to his existence. And this becomes important because as John gets to this, there is something that we need to understand about God, and it is that we need to know him. In a relationship, both parties need to know each other. This morning I was talking about that, 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 that need talking about you know when when the, that question comes up of uh, uh, is this person that i'm looking at for a spouse is that person the will of god is that person who i'm supposed to marry and understanding that wisdom that we have to begin to apply to discern and to judge whether or not that is the will of god for our life and is it that's the right person and when we start looking at that person what do we have to do we have to look at that individual and ask some serious questions we have to understand, our, you know, number one, are they trusting Christ as their Savior? And number two, what is their walk with Jesus Christ? What does it look like? And we have to begin to really, truly search those things out when we want to know that person. So when we want to know who God is, we have to put an effort into it. We have to put effort into that relationship. But what we look at here is, first and foremost, John starts off with what we've done. We need to understand this when we know God is that our sin was offensive. Now, praise the Lord that he is the propitiation for our sins. He has, if you will, uh, reconciled that. He is very clearly, as we, we just said, he's appeased it. He's appeased it. And he makes it clear that it's not just our sins here Here's another issue here's another verse if you want to put it in there against the the Calvinists or the reformed theologist is this where it says, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ became that propitiation through the death of uh, uh, uh through his death and through his shed blood. For the sins of the entire world, as we talked about over there, where John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ coming uh, over there in, in John chapter one. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not the sin of a limited amount, not the sin of only a certain elect, but the sin of the whole world. These are things that we have to begin to understand about what God's talking about. And what this demonstrates is, if you will, the beginning of a relationship of God, knowing who he is. When we get married, we don't really seek out to offend our spouse. You know, there's there's habits and things that we develop over the course of time or that we wind up knowing that we need to change later on or something of that nature that may be offensive, and we do those things because we love and care about the other person. Or at least you should. But the idea and the concept is, is when we begin to look at what has offended God and what offends him, it should give us, if you will, as he said here, they're being written so that we would not sin. To know how offensive that sin is that Jesus Christ had to die and become that appeasement that he had to do that to, 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 to make it right. But again, it's not just for us, but it's for the sins of the whole world. We begin to see how much God cares. And what John begins to do is he begins to, if you will, form a structure by which we can begin to hang the knowledge of who Jesus Christ, who God is. Because here we are in verse 3, and as we get down to this one, it says, and hereby do we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, I just said that sin is when we violate his commandments. When we violate his commandments. So so here's what we know about this. Here's what we know about God. We know that God loves us. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son we know romans five eight but God commandeth His love toward us and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. we know second peter three nine which uh, is, is states that uh, um, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's more to those verses that you know than obviously I'm quoting, but I'm getting to a point here that we begin to form an understanding of who God is and what He does and why He cares about us. So what He's, you know, given to us is love in that propitiation. And it becomes key here where John is saying, look, we're beginning to know about Him. We're beginning to know what offends Him. We're beginning to know that He doesn't want us to continue in sin. So as we continue in this same thought, the way that we keep from sin, is to keep his commandments. To keep his commandments. Now look, I understand what goes on in the Old Testament. There are things that we don't keep. We don't kill turtle doves and lambs and and and, and goats, and we don't do those things. And, and again, there's you know an understanding about that and how that all works. But there are things in there that we do the moral the moral commandments, if you will. That, that we need to make sure that we are still abiding by those things. Uh, because thou shalt not kill is still pertinent today. <laughs> that, that is not something that just, you know, oh well, hey, you know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and abolished the law. So hey, I guess it's free reign to go ahead and kill everybody. No, it's not. That's still sin. That's still sin. Honoring your father and mother. That's a commandment. Disobeying that commandment is still sin. It was sin in the Old Testament and it is sin in the New Testament. So we begin to understand those concepts. But at the same time, we also know that being at liberty, God has also given us some new commandments by which we abide. We have the law of Christ that we fulfill. He tells us to do certain things in a command sentence structure. We understand that there are things that he tells us that we need to do. And again, as the Bible states, if we know to do what is right or do good and we fail to do it, to us it's what? Sin. If we remove the faith from our, from what we do, faith being that we believe the word of God as it is and obey it. If we remove faith, what does the Bible say? Uh The stuff that is without faith is what? Sin. We begin to understand that God has some commandments for us as believers that we still need to obey. Now, obviously not to obey for salvation because that was taken care of on the cross. That's the propitiation. But there is the expectation of, look, if you truly say that you've got a relationship with God, you're going to do what he asks you to do. You're not going to be offensive to him. And one of the most difficult things for, for some people to grasp a hold of is that they need to actively pursue God to know him to really, truly know him. Does anybody have a, a kind of a clue about which uh, which book of the Bible talks about keeping commandments the most? It's the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that's interesting considering you've got a whole generation that was raised seeing uh, uh, individuals um, dying off in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience to God, now being told you need to keep my commandments, you need to keep my commandments, you need to keep my commandments because that's important. Jesus Christ reiterates that same thought process to the disciples to the disciples. So let's take a look at this here, you know, a couple other verses. Let's go over to the book of Exodus. Let's start there in the Old Testament. Let's take a look at a couple of things. Exodus chapter 20. Again, Exodus chapter 20 is a familiar passage because Exodus chapter 20 is where we have the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 In verse 6, talking about God showing his mercy and says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And keep my commandments. That is an important principle that God is beginning to establish. Now this lines up exactly with what John is saying and also what Jesus Christ said to John. We'll look at those verses in just a moment, but keep in mind this. He says, of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, that is an important principle. Because as John begins to go into this a bit more about love, what does he say there? He, he says, you know, that the love of God, we're supposed to be expressing that love. We're supposed to be demonstrating that love. It's supposed to be something that comes out of our life. So when we take a look at this passage, we begin to realize there is a connection between, you know, obedience and love. Which is why when you look at, if you will truly look at the definition of obedience in Scripture, the keeping of commandments, you will find that it is done out of a love for God, not a compliance. Not a because I have to. No, it's I want to because I don't want to offend my, my my Lord who has given so much for me, who died on the cross for me. I don't want to do those things that are going to be offensive to him. I want to please him, so I'm going to do what he asks me to do. That becomes the thought process. Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 begins to make some of that connection here. Take a look at a parallel passage. Go over to the book of Deuteronomy. Just as we were talking about, we're going to take a look at several of the passages in Deuteronomy because, uh, you know, trying to exhaust them all would have uh, taken all night. But we're, we're not going to go through all of them. But Deuteronomy chapter five is where we want to start. Deuteronomy chapter five, <clears throat> and in Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, in uh, this passage again. We find some things that he begins to go through, and if we will, we find a repeat of uh, the Ten Commandments. Because he starts off in verse 6, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We find that very similar to what is over there in Exodus chapter 20. This is the expectation that God had for the nation of Israel. This is how he begins to outline it. And as you go down here through this a little bit further, uh, again, he, he makes it very clear that he wants his people, specifically as he's talking to here, Israel, to do what he tells them to do and to avoid what he tells them to avoid. There are a lot of thou shalt nots, but there are also a lot of thou shalts, meaning that there are things that we need to make sure that we're doing. You take a look here in verse ten of this passage again that parallel passage it says in showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, the reason I have both of these is because one is prior to them coming into the land in the book of Exodus, they just came out of Egypt and they're getting ready to go over to the land. They go over to the land and over there in the book of numbers, and it doesn't uh that doesn't pan out for them because they rebel against God, if you will don't think God can do it don't believe God they're disobedient they're stubborn they're stiff necked as he calls them and the end result is, is they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die off that generation and the new generation comes in that has seen all these wonderful things that God's done and what does God do he reiterates this is the same expectation the generation before you i had that expectation that generation that, that that expectation consists uh, or, excuse me, um, uh, exists in this generation as well. And again, if you will, it's still same here in the New Testament. God still has an expectation to keep the commandments that he's given to us. That he's given to us. Go over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter, uh, let's take a look here, chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 6. Chapter 6 and take a look at verse uh, 17 here. <clears throat> It says, ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded thee. Now, now I want you to notice here how he describes how those things are to be done. Diligently. Diligently. I mentioned this before, when we, when, when a, a company is being purchased or something is uh, being done and there's an agreement, there's an expectation of what is referred to as due diligence. Meaning that that uh, if another company is going to buy a, a company, they go in there and they take a look, and the books are opened, and they, they they get to examine exactly what the company is doing. Now, obviously, there's confidentiality and there's non-disclosure agreements that are all signed and saying that they're not going to talk bad about the company and so on and so forth if they discover something horrible. But they go in there and they begin to take a look at it saying, hey look, we want to buy, here's the offer, let's do our due diligence, you know, everyone's accepted this is a good amount, they start looking at the books and if all of a sudden they find that somebody's cooking the books, and they're actually, instead of being four billion in the plus, they're four billion in the whole, they can back out of that agreement really quickly. It's doing your due diligence. You examine all the aspects of that company to make sure, is this the right decision? Is this the right choice? Is this the right purchase to make? Some people will do that with cars. Some people will do that with refrigerators. Some people will do that with whatever it is they're going to buy. But what we need to do as believers is understand this, is that we do our due diligence examining every area of our life to ensure that we are keeping the commandments of God because we don't want to sin in ignorance. But that's not a good excuse. It's not a good excuse in the court of the laws of man. You can't walk in there and, you know, you're facing a, you know, a suspension and jail time and all sorts of things because you were driving 100 miles an hour over the speed limit. You can't walk in there and say, oh, I didn't know there was such a thing as a speed limit. What do you think those signs were on the side of the road? Well, I didn't read them. Those are not excuses. You lose your license, you go to jail, you pay fines and so on and so forth. And, and, and to you know, for those that that speed excessively in 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 very high rates of speed, well over the speed limit, two, three, four, five times the speed limit, those people, they, they, those are criminal offenses. Isn't it interesting that we call them offenses? But here we are looking at this, and God says, "This is the expectation." He says, "Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord." Diligence means that you are getting to know exactly who God is and exactly what he wants. This is how we begin to know him. The best way to know who God is, is to know what he expects of us. Is to know what he wants. To know what his will is. That's how we begin to understand who God is. And to truly know him in the relationship that he wants us to have with him. Take a look at another passage over in Deuteronomy and uh, take a look at chapter 8 this time. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, uh, Again, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and to fear him. If we are going to walk in the paths that God has given to us, we need to understand, or excuse me, we need to know who God is. Let's understand this for a moment. I've I, I kind of mentioned this a little bit about the way that, that God describes our Christian life. He talks about ways, he talks about paths, he talks about direction, he talks about all of those things. Uh, when it comes to our Christian walk, okay? And we kind of use that looseness of terms of, you know, say, hey, you know, somebody says, where's Seattle? And I can say, well, it's that way. And I can give a general, general, if you will. And then somebody can say, okay, well, well, how am I going to get there? Well, you're going to take I-5 to get there. There's, there's the path. Can you give me specific instructions about, you know, which exits to take, uh, where, where to get off, all of those things. And I begin to give the guide, if you will, the guidelines that God has, has his guidance us in the guidance part. And We get more and more details. But when we start looking at the ways of God, have we ever asked ourselves the question, why would he want us to go that way and not another way? nation of Israel, when it was coming out of Egypt, God had them take a detour. Did you ever notice that? God had them take a detour when they were coming out. Why was that? So they didn't run into a group of people called the Philistines. They ran into them later. But the Philistines, you know what they are? The Philistines are a warmongering group. They still are today. Just take a look at what's going on over there in the Middle East. They're still warmongering. They love war and they have the, they, they've made a lifetime of war. They, it, you know, you take a look at history and the way that they behaved uh, historically uh, with Egypt, Egypt got so sick and tired of them. Because they used to be at one point a bit of a nautical kind of pirateer type uh, 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 group of people and then uh, Egypt comes in and defeats them. And then you've got to figure out what are they going to do with these people, and they stuffed them over there in that area and said, Here, this is your land, just stay there. And anybody that kind of, if you will, walked close to them, was it was it, was, it it's like the dog that you get a little too close to, they start snarling, snapping, and biting. And God knew exactly what was going to happen if the nation of Israel and its young state was to walk past. The Philistines will walk through their lands. It was going to be a conflict. There was going to be a war. And he knew that it was going to, if you will, cause a stumbling block to them to have them return to Egypt. So he had them go a different way. The ways of God truly reveal who he is and what he knows and what he wants for us. He didn't want Israel to experience war because he didn't want them to return back to Egypt, back into bondage. He cared about them. So what did he say? I want you to take a little bit of a longer journey. Sometimes in this life, when we're talking about getting to know God, uh, we, we, we we get a little bit, if you will, um, kind of in our own minds, this idea of how quickly we think God should respond. We, we, we get an understanding of how we want God to, to do things for us. And, and, and we get this expectation of, oh, okay, God, you know, I, I'm in this, this trouble, I'm in this problem, Um Lord, here's how I want you to take care of it. Here's how I want you to take care of it. And I, I, I've talked to people and I've counseled with people that have, uh, said, well, God doesn't hear my prayers. And I said, well, I know these prayers are between you and God, but maybe I can help you with this. Can you tell me exactly what your prayer is for this situation? And when it comes to a sinful pattern that they're dealing with, (laughs) excuse me, a sinful pattern that they're dealing with, one of the things that that, that I, I frequently hear is I keep praying that God will stop me from doing it. That's not the right prayer. God's not gonna come down, grab a hold of your wrist and say no. Now there are times that he has done stuff like that. Balaam, <laughs> as well as others. Maybe in your personal life you, you, you realize that. I mean Mike Nemeth gives a very good description of a bird that was telling that was sent from God to tell him no. <laughs> we understand that those things do happen, right? But I will tell you this, when you're dealing with a problem that has been habituated over the course of time, you need to use the word of God to deal with it. There's different ways to deal with it. Mike was talking about, you know, that that uh, uh devil that was over there that only came out by what? Prayer and fasting. Not the casting out, not the calling and in, in saying, hey, get out and things of that nature. Uh, none of those things. It was by prayer and fasting that one came out. I want you to think about this. The same thing is true in your life. There are certain things that God, that you want God to do or certain ways that God has sent you to go and, and, and it may not necessarily be the way that you're thinking it should be. It may be, you're like, well, the straightest line between, or the, 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 the quickest way between two, two points is a straight line and so on and so forth. And, and you want to try to get that way or whatever it may be. And God says, no, I want you to do it something different. And it may be to help break some of those sinful patterns. And replace them with biblical ones. That's the way we we stop the sin. I mean, we just read over there that that's why these things are written. So that we would not sin. And I will tell you this, a generous dose of the word of God will help keep you from sin. Well, how do I know that? Because that's what God said. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against these. I've written these things that ye sin not. I mean, we begin to understand that concept. we got to truly believe it, though. And we got to apply it. We want to get rid of the sin? Well, let's start looking at what the Word of God says about it. Let's take a look at a couple other passages. Let's go over to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 78. I mean, like I said, we could spend all night over there in the book of Deuteronomy looking at everything that he says about keeping the commandments, keeping the commandments. But I think we have an understanding of what his expectation was with the nation of Israel. Parallels with what God has an expectation for us as believers. So it's applicable to us. Just because it was written in the Old Testament and just because it was written to to them does not mean that we get to escape the whole concept of obeying God and keeping his commandments. In Psalm chapter 78, and take a look at verse 7 here, he says, uh, um, uh, just to kind of back up here a little bit, uh, where he says in verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them unto their children. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the works of God, what God has done. In verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's the whole concept of reiterating things that you are learning to the children, that they would reiterate them to their children and so on and so forth. Well, we, we, we understand that as we progress further and further to the end of this whole thing, that people are less and less inclined to seek God. Now scripture mentions that talks about that. Okay. We understand that it's getting to that point. But I dare say that one of the reasons why some of the mess that we're in is because people failed to understand this verse. They failed to understand that they might set their hope in God. No, they set their hope in something else. It's an election year. We were doing our taxes the other day, and, and the gal that does our taxes is H&R Block, Um uh, you know, they always ask, do you want to donate $3 to the election fund? And I was like, no, because I don't like any of the candidates so far. <laughs> I, I, I'm wanting to go brush off and see if I can get a hold of that, uh, uh, that bumper sticker that I saw that was in 2016. It said 2016, giant meteor just ended already. And I'm just like, well, that's fitting. 'Cause you know, that is a tribulation thing that's going to happen, but you know, it's interesting. But, you know, I take a look at that, but some people, you know what their hope is in? The, the the next coming president. That he's gonna fix the he's gonna fix this. He's gonna fix the economy. He's gonna fix the border issue. He's gonna fix, you know, all of these things that we have. He's gonna fix inflation, he's gonna he's gonna our hope isn't in them. Our hope is in God. Man just muddles the mess. When we look at this, he says that they might have set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. And I dare say that we don't communicate enough the works of God in our life. Let's face it. Human beings are a complaining lot. We, we, we complain about everything. It's too hot. It's too cold. There was a period of time where I I, I, I kind of did some facilities management. It was just kind of dumped on me, and I was giving the keys to the thermostat in the office. I wanted to flush those keys because you know what? You could never make anybody happy. I'd be sitting there in the office typing away doing my real job, and in comes somebody. It's too cold in the pharmacy. Oh, this is kind of told you where it was, sorry. But it's too cold. And I'm like, okay, well I'll go check it in just a minute. I go check it and it's it's at an appropriate temperature. Because again, you know, we want to make sure that we're not burning everyone out. But there are people that want that thing set at eighty degrees. And then there are people that want it set at forty. my folks were like that in the old house that they had i we would walk in and you could see your breath i mean it was like you were walking into a freezer section in uh you know of a grocery store i mean the thing was so cold it was like pretty sure they had like an operating morgue out of the back or something it was just it was so cold And they were like, well, well, we like it cold. And then they're all bundled up under these blankets and, you know, wearing sweaters and things like that. And I was just sitting there going, "Ah." you know, and over there the girls are sitting there, their teeth are chattering and, you know, it's, it's cold. I'd go and I'd check it and I'd be like, okay, what's fine. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an issue. And then I'd go sit back down in my office. Somebody would come in. It's too cold now in the, or it's too warm in the pharmacy. And I'm like, I didn't change a thing. Well, it's too warm. Can you turn it down? No. Layer, folks, layer, you know. You don't know what it's gonna be like, so put on a cardigan and a sweater or something like that, and then you can take off and, 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 you know, layer in the, it's just simple. Dress for it, okay? Bring a blanket if you have to to work. I mean, come on. You can't appease anybody. Can't appease anybody. People are always complaining. Constantly. Constantly. And I'll tell you this, it's because we forgot what God's already done for us. We forgot what God, what what good things God has given us. We forget about how he's cared for us here and he's cared for us there and he did this for us and he did that for us. And, and, and God's saying, look, you know, here's a part of the problem. They, They forgot, they forgot. And what happens, he says that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And here's what happens. When we no longer have hope and we no longer remember what God's done for us, we no longer care about what he tells us to do. And when we start looking at, is our life a series of violating God's commandments, then we need to go backwards and say, well, maybe I need to start being thankful in my life for what God has truly done. That will change some things. And start setting my hope back in God instead of myself to fix the problems or someone else to fix the problems. We have to come to the conclusion that God is our only source of fixing things when we realize that only God's word is going to give us the right answer instead of the world's answer, because the world answer just says, believe in yourself. I have always struggled with that saying, believe in yourself. And I've always thought about it this way. It's like the Easter bunny. I don't believe in the Easter bunny. Just to clarify. Okay? I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. Why? Because it doesn't exist. So when somebody says believe in myself, you're saying that I don't exist? You're saying that I have this mindset that I don't exist? I never understood that. To me, it's nonsense. To me, it's just a a saying to try to help appease something and move on. It doesn't offer any real hope. But God does. God says, don't put your confidence in men. God says, put your hope in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Again, you know, that is a process that we, be, we understand that God tells us that we're supposed to do. We, we 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 get a hold of these things, and we begin to realize this is what helps keep our commandment. It keeps His commandment. This is what we as believers need to be making sure that we're doing. If we're truly going to know Him, we are going to have a hope in Him. We're going to remember what He's done for us, and that helps us know Him, and that keeps helps us keep those commandments. Take a look at another passage. Go over to the Book of Ecclesiastes. Last chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after Solomon goes through and basically describes that everything in this world is vain, that everything that we try to do uh, on our own power is vain, that everything that is of the flesh is vain, that the pursuit of things other than God is vain, he comes to this conclusion in verse 13 of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here we are. You want a conclusion of the whole matter? And if you will, to uh, I, I like to put this, if you will, as a kind of a summary of what the Bible's about. You want to hear a conclusion of the whole book? You want to hear a conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. There you go. Well, what's the purpose of life right there? Somebody says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Memorize it so you can say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Wait, what? <laughs> we need a lot more fear of God in this world. Yeah. We need a lot of fear of God in our lives. And when we fear him, it's because we know him. We know what he wants. We know what his expectations are. I've often given this analogy. Uh, my my dad, I mean, you know, when I was young, I always thought, well, my dad's like the second strongest person in the world because there's always going to be somebody stronger. So it's like, you know, my dad's the second strongest. He can take anybody in a fight. You know, that's kind of how I viewed it. My dad's not a brawler, by the way, or a fighter. He's, he's just not that kind of mentality uh but, uh, but I always thought, you know, push comes to shove. My dad's going to take anybody down. That's how I viewed it. But that also gave me a good, healthy fear of him. Now, I wasn't scared of him. I love him dearly. He, I mean, he, he, he has been a, a very kind and gentle man to me and my brother And my, my mom in this, in in this life and, um, just his demeanor and who he is. I, I truly honestly respect that. But I will say this, I knew what his standards were. I've given this analogy before and I, you know, again, I always kind of cringe when I give it because it gives somebody some bad ideas. But we used to have these big, giant, thick rubber bands uh, that we would get from Dad's work, and we would uh, make weapons with them, specifically crossbows. Now, if there's one thing that I know about boys' wood and crossbow-type material is that somebody's going to get shot. It's usually what happens. Uh, That whole uh, concept of an idea of, you know, somebody getting hurt with it, well, okay, okay. But, again, we came from the generation of where, you know, ropes and dirt in it and just move on, right? You know, just, okay, you fall off the monkey bars 12 feet and, you you know, get a concussion. Okay, go to the hospital, get it taken care of, and move on with your life, all right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that kind of mentality, all right? I'm not saying that, you know, you don't care for the kids and you don't love on them when they're injured and hurt and stuff like that. But, again, it's the mentality. I, I didn't need padded bars that were only 1 inch off the ground for the monkey bars, okay? <clears throat> it's part of life. You got to learn to hurt. <laughs> if you if you're not if you don't learn by hurting, you're going to learn by stupidity. And that hurts worse. So I'm just going to say, moving on on that subject. Needless to say, bad decisions were made disobedient on both parts, you know, on the party of of me and my brother, I wound up putting a crossbow bolt, which was a sharpened dowel into my brother's thigh. It happens. Like I said, you know, it's just one of those things. And, uh, the end result is, is we, you know, um, Go to the, to the folks because we couldn't get it out. The si- skin had uh, grabbed around it and had hold on held, held on to that piece of wood and it wasn't let go. So we had to go get it taken out and you know go to the you know emergency urgent care and get it uh, removed. And and uh, I just remember the drive there. It was complete silence in the car. Um, you know my mom's though in the front. You can tell she, she's you know <laughs> rocking back and forth because it's you know she's worried about you know. The poor child, my brother and stuff like that. And you know, she ushers him into the back. And I just remember sitting in the waiting room, sitting across from my dad and my dad just staring at me. <laughs> I didn't get a spanking for it. I didn't get grounded. I didn't get anything from that. Why? Because the disappointment in my father's face was enough. That was enough for me. I had violated his standards. I had done something wrong. I had offended him. I didn't have to say a thing. I feared him at that moment. Not because I thought he was going to hurt me. But I had violated that expectation. So when I look at this verse... And I realized that this is what helps keep me the commandments. I did not create another crossbow afterwards. I did not shoot my brother intentionally with a crossbow bolt again. The behavior changed. The same thing is true when we fear God and we realize that anything that we do that is contrary to his commandments is going to be a violation and offensive to him. I'm going to fear him. And again, not in a manner of where I'm scared of him or afraid of him. But because of his holiness, I know that I've disappointed. So what do I do? I fear him, and by fearing him, I keep his commandments. That's all he, it's the whole duty of man. That's the whole duty of man. Go over to another passage, and this time over in the New Testament, and let's go over to the book of John. As I said, John learned this from somewhere. Where did John learn this from? He learned it from Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> Jesus Christ himself, you know, here, here, here we are in this, uh, this passage. And as we're getting towards the end of, uh, um, uh, you know, Christ's earthly ministry, I'm getting closer to the crucifixion, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on. And if you want to know what went on at the last supper, these chapters right through here, um, all the way over to chapter 17, this deals with what was the conversation that night. Deals with what was being said and what was going on. And we find here in chapter 14, in John chapter 14, Jesus Christ says something uh to them. And he says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Just like what was written over there in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Jesus Christ reiterates this. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. And again, one of the main themes about the book of First John, First John is love, is love. And here we find he says that if we truly love God, because Jesus Christ is God, we will do what He asks us to do. We will do what He asks us to do. This gives—I mean—that that really gets down to the root of the matter, because we begin to really truly love things and love people you have a, a a knowledge of them you have an understanding about who they are and that's where we begin to grow in Christ the more we know him the more we don't want to do what he tells us to not do we 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 want to avoid offending him we want to avoid being a subject for the accuser and this is why John said my little children I write these things that ye sin what not if you love me keep my commandments and take a look at what he says over in the next chapter chapter 15 chapter 15, and in verse 10, he says this, he says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, as I have kept my father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now, the love of God is an amazing thing. And Romans says nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the question is, is that where you dwell? Is that your abode? Is that where you choose to call home? And the way that we truly begin to understand how much God loves us is to keep those commandments. Now, I'll say this. People wrestle wrestle with eternal security and people think, you know, I've done that before in my life. And I'll tell you this, the reason why I wrestled with eternal security is because I wasn't keeping all of God's commandments. I wasn't doing what God told me to do. And it created a, if you will, an unwarranted fear. I feared something that was not in existence. I feared something that was not in existence. Now look, I'm going to make a statement and I'm sure somebody's going to probably send me an email or give me a phone call or send me a text message or come to me after service. But just suffice it to say, when I was younger, I feared some, I had, I had a lot of fear in my life. Uh not only did I have a fear of aliens, but I'm not talking about the cinematic aliens. Those were fine. I didn't care about those. I thought those were cool. I'm talking about the green things with the big eyes or the gray things with the big eyes, and those things freaked me out. I couldn't stand it. Somebody showed me a picture of them. Man, I had nightmares that night. I, I, I couldn't deal with it. But before that, there was another fear. And we lived over in Walla Walla, Washington when this uh, this happened and occurred, and we'd do a lot of hiking over in the Blue Mountains and things of that nature. But the one thing that I feared when we would go out there, you know what I was fearful of? Yep, Bigfoot. (laughs) I was fearful of Sasquatch. A man, he scared me half to death. Because we'd sit there at night, and we'd be watching a show, and it would be a documentary on Bigfoot, and guess what? All of a sudden, I have an irrational fear of Bigfoot. Because, you know, all these people are like, I saw Bigfoot, you know. <clears throat> no, what you probably saw was a hairy man walking across a pond. <clears throat> probably saw, I mean, whatever it is. And somebody's going to say, well, a little Sasquatch really exists. I, look, I just stop, Okay. Just stop. That's one of those questions that, you know, needless debates and stuff like that. Let's just stop. I was fearful of that. It was an irrational fear. Because I was fearing that Bigfoot was going to bust into our condominium and come abduct me. Yeah, Bigfoot's going to stroll down the main street of Walla Walla, Washington, bust into my house and take me captive for whatever reason, completely, totally, utterly irrational. But I'll tell you that, that's a lot of what our fears are. And a lot of fears come about because we don't do what God tells us to do. The greatest comfort for fear is love, according to Scripture. When I began to realize how I could deal with fear was by just reflecting on how much God loved me and what God has done for me. The fears dissipated. They went away. I don't fear Bigfoot anymore. I'm not too scared of aliens anymore. I'm more concerned about whether I'm pleasing God with my life. I'm more concerned about whether or not I'm keeping His commandments. Why? Because I want to abide in that love. I want to continue in that. I want to make that my home because it is safe and it is secure. Now, I was hoping to get to to verse four. Didn't quite get there, but but I, I just want to read this verse just again so that we can meditate on for, for for next week, it says, he that saith over there in First uh, uh, John chapter 2 in verse 4 it says, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The irrational fears that came about was because I was telling myself a lie. And the truth wasn't there. So when I begin to look at This idea and concept of knowing God, when I know Him and I keep His commandments, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. But if I say I know God and I do the exact opposite of what He tells me to, there is a conflict, there is a sin, there is a problem. And John points this out and he gets right to the heart of it and says, we're liars, Not only are we hypocrites, which is what the world would use, but God specifically says, told John to write down, call them liars. I don't know about you, but I don't like being called a liar. Them's fighting words. I'll defend myself. But I'll tell you this. If God says something about your life and you read that and you see it and you think God's calling you a liar, I think maybe we should probably stop and stop being defensive in our own pride and sit down and examine ourselves. (laughs) Because I'll tell you, one of the biggest principles behind the book of First John is self-examination. If you're saying something, you better be doing it. You better be following through with it. That's God's expectation. We'll pick up with verse four, Lord willing, next week, unless the rapture happens and we're out of here. Then, well, hey, yeah, then we'll all be in heaven and we'll, we'll be rejoicing. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Brother Mike Nemeth, would you dismiss this, please?